This is Conquering Columbus. Hey everybody, this is Andy here filling in for Mike, who's in Portland this week. On this episode of Conquering Columbus, Josh is chatting with Tom Bruce. Tom is the CEO and founder of Conversion Path. They cover a ton of ground in this interview, and early on, Tom talked about his early career in the venture space and the earlier days of Tech Columbus. I was fortunate that I was able to do quite a bit of venture finance work in town when I worked at a couple startups early in my career. That was a very cool experience, you know, trying to find resources for how cap tables work and, and things like that was uh, a little bit hard to do back then. I mean, that was kind of the earlier days of Tech Columbus. So I had to learn a great deal about that. And it was a lot of fun. I guess that's the differentiator that I would put out there between finance and accounting, how you fund your company versus uh, how you keep score. Later, Tom talked about a big challenge conversion path faced early on, losing one of their largest clients after hiring some of their first staff. I went for it and I hired a couple guys. And uh, right after getting my second guy, on the team, we lost more than half of our business in the very next week. And all of a sudden I had these two employees and was losing money by having the doors open. And so, you know, I didn't feel right telling one of the guys this isn't working out because that, that was really on me. So I just uh, I just kept them going and, and luckily it worked out fine. Within three months, we picked up some good clients and, and it all worked out. It's good to be in a growing industry. And at that time, Google Ads was growing like crazy. They wrap up the conversation talking about what really motivates entrepreneurs for the long haul. And I'll give you a hint, it's not money. When I started, it was, I definitely set out on the on the path to make some money and do better than I could have done in a, in a job. And that changed. I mean, that, that motive won't sustain people. And I, I felt good about the fact that I changed like I was I was happy that I could feel that occurring like the things that I focused on were starting to change and so a core belief that what you're doing matters is is pretty clutch you know it's, it's that's what sustains you that's what keeps you going not really the money so much it tends to follow you build great things usually the money's there as always we want to thank you so much for tuning in and supporting the show all right that's it for me let's get to it hey everybody welcome to conquering columbus Today, we have as our guest, Tom Bruce. Tom is the CEO and founder of Conversion Path. He's a former CFO turned marketer, and he founded Conversion Path in 2011. Conversion Path offers e-commerce brands specialized strategies to maximize sales and profits. Innovation they developed in search, social, and marketplace advertising give their clients a competitive advantage in their market. We're excited to talk with Tom about his journey from CFO to marketer, how Conversion Path has grown over time, where they're headed, and everything they have going on today. Welcome to Conquering Columbus, Tom. Thank you, Josh. appreciate the opportunity to be a part of the show and I uh, appreciate that you support entrepreneurs. Yeah, appreciate that you uh, have taken the risk to become one and I'm excited to hear about your journey and everything you guys have going on today. I'd love to start back in the beginning a little bit and hear about where you grew up and the key milestones that you had that led you maybe pre-entrepreneurship. I uh, grew up here in uh, Dublin, Ohio and I uh, went to Bowling Green State University where I started my first semester with a 0.5 GPA. And uh, earned the nickname .5 boy that lasted for a couple of years. So, so that's that's real, really, 0.5. Oh, yeah, 0.5. You have to work at that kind of grade point average. From the bottom to the top, literally. That is, <laughs> you really climb. Bottom of the bottle, yes. So uh, I had my fun, and, uh, you know, I worked it out of my system. I think uh, accountability is a great teacher. And uh, I, I was taking a look at where my future was headed, and I knew I didn't want to repeat that. So I got my head on straight after that and uh, chose accounting as a field um, after a, a mentor of mine put it the uh, language of business. And I thought he was right about that. I'd say I still think that. And uh, it's been super helpful to know accounting as a background, even though I don't really want to do it ever again. 
it's funny, like my, my undergrad degree was, was in math and uh, accounting. It's not that I don't get it, but I, I think that there's a very special place in this world for accountants. It's like you just got to have your brain work certain ways. And it's just, it's almost a language, right? Like it's way more than just the math behind it. But then you start trying to wrap your head around some complex businesses with working capital and all those things. And if you're trying to start a business without it, you know, it's just so challenging. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's two types of accountants. There's the ones that look backwards and, and sort of count the score. And there are those that take that information and figure out how to do better going forward. And, um, you know, those those tend to be the CFOs a lot of times. So that is a good question. So you have a client now that their their niche is Fortune 500 level finance for lower middle market companies. And what I think we've become to realize is that there's not a lot of companies in that range that necessarily understand the difference between accounting and finance. And so I don't want to take us off the, the script too much, but I'm curious to hear from your personal take. Like, have you ever really thought about that? And how do you personally define that that divide? I mean, finance, I guess the way I typically think about it is just how, how the capital structure works in a company, you know, whether they're financing it through debt or equity. I was fortunate that I was able to do quite a bit of venture finance work in town when I worked at a couple startups early in my career. That was a very cool experience, you know, trying to find resources for how cap tables work and, and things like that was uh, a little bit hard to do back then. I mean, that was kind of the earlier days of Tech Columbus. And uh, so I had to learn a great deal about that. And it was a lot of fun. But um you know that I guess that's the differentiator that I would put out there between finance and accounting. It's how you how you fund your company versus uh, how you keep score. It's kind of like that capital allocation and growth and reinvestment aspect of it. And so you you finish up at Bowling Green, right? What was your your degree was in accounting uh, right from undergrad? Mm-hmm. And then where do you go after that? So both my parents were business owners. My dad had a construction firm. My mom started a nonprofit in Dublin, and it grew to be pretty big. And so I knew I wanted to be an entrepreneur. Um, really before I was even out of high school. So I figured access to entrepreneurs would be a good way to get started. And so I, I chose a small CPA firm as a place to get started as opposed to a large one. I had friends that got pigeonholed into sales tax departments at, at large firms, and I didn't want to spend two years doing you know sales taxes or something like that. So I picked a small firm. I figured I'd, I'd get access to business owners who I could talk to. That did work out pretty good. And I think that working at like a consulting firm or a CPA firm or a marketing agency, it, it has some advantages if you're looking to learn and grow because you work with a lot of businesses, see a lot of different things, and you have to be pretty good because if you can't demonstrate that you can come up with ideas and sell those ideas to your clients, they do not stay your clients for very long at all. And so that's a great training grounds to get good at you know, entrepreneurship. Yeah, I'd say some of the smartest people in, in business I think that I've interacted with, you know, over the years have been either involved in some form of consulting, whether that's hands-on and in, in, in doing auditing through the accounting practice or whether that's, you know, doing business strategy through a BCG or something like that. They just get the opportunity to see such a large breadth of problems and peel back the curtain on so many different types of businesses that they pick up on on some of the micro and macro trends that you might not, you know, typically be able to do if you hadn't had that experience. Absolutely. And so... You're, you're going down the CPA route. Um, how long do you do that for? I mean, I, I stayed in the financial arena for about a decade. I worked at the CPA firm for about a year and a half, and then I saw this opportunity to become a certified QuickBooks advisor in Columbus, and uh, there weren't any. There were no others. I, I looked on into a website, and there were, nobody had signed up yet. So QuickBooks was blowing up at the time. So I signed up for that and uh, I got pretty good at it. And then I had a bunch of uh, people start contacting me from their website because they were underserved. And so I ended up quitting my job and and starting um, my own firm when I was 22 and 
that is sort of a scary time to start a job because not many people at that age choose the entrepreneurial path. And so you just, you feel like you're doing something wrong. And I feel like you get a lot of feedback from the world at that age that you're doing something wrong. And I had no, no real plan or no network. I didn't know anyone. And I just wanted to take the plunge and start learning. So I thought I was ready to be an entrepreneur at that point in time. And, and uh, I pretty quickly learned that I was not quite ready. I'm always curious about that because when you wake up as an entrepreneur and you decided to do it, nobody gives you a guidebook or lets you know what you're doing right and wrong. And I think what I struggle with the most mentally is the fear of spending my time in the wrong places. Yeah. And when you're 22, it's like you, you kind of, you're used to people giving you direction and you you can do really well in life if you just execute on what was laid in front of you. So you wake up one morning and you say, I got to figure out what's in front of me and what I do next. And, and where did where did you struggle the most in that path? For me, I uh, I started picking up clients and they all had different needs. And I just did not understand that it was okay to say no. I, I really, I just said yes to whatever they needed. So I'd be setting up QuickBooks in the morning and then a different client needed me to research the tax deferred status of a retirement plan, you know, or, or a healthcare plan. And I mean, I was just all over the place trying to keep up with the demands of the clients. And then when I got to where I was working pretty full time at it, that, that was comfortable in that I was paying the bills, but I mean, I was working way too hard and I started thinking, how am I going to hire somebody to do a hundred different things, you know, and, and juggle all these balls and keep them in the air without falling to the ground and imploding. And uh, that seemed like the ultimate nightmare to trust somebody else to do what I was currently doing. And so I knew that there was something wrong with how I was running the business. I just didn't know what. I, I decided it was time to take a step back and regroup. And so I actually sold the practice after only having it for about a year, year and a half. And uh, I got about a year's salary out of it. So I, I figured, hey, that's not bad. And uh, I moved on at that point in time. So I took a little bit of time and figured out where do you go next, you know, after that experience. And so uh, for me, I decided I wanted to go work at a startup. I thought, hey, why not get uh get some time uh, working with an experienced entrepreneur where I could learn by watching and, and doing and, and getting pretty hands-on, but also have a safety net. I was able to use the financial background I had to get a CFO job at, at two different investor-funded startups here in town. Uh, one was called The Drop Spot. They were doing some pretty interesting things. Uh, they didn't quite make it, but we had a, a great run at it, about a four-year run. And uh, What were they doing? I'm always curious about the one, you know, like you always wonder in the moment, who's not going to make it? And <clears throat> I want to look back in 10 years. I, I mean, I hope everybody does, right? But I just... Yeah. So they were uh, very early to the game on trade-in, trade-up programs. And so iPods were fairly new still at the time. And um, iPhones were just getting ready to come out. And uh, so we were in this trade-up business where people could bring uh, like their phone over to... Uh, a retail store and we would power the program for them where they could look at, hey, that phone's worth, you know, 90 bucks. We'll give you 90 bucks to store credit for it. You know, we'd run a few tests and then we would liquidate all the stuff on eBay. We'd make some money, you know, on the spread. Do you have any thoughts or feelings on why they didn't make it or is that that too much of a question? Well, yeah, there's that's that could be a long conversation. Why we didn't make it. I mean, I think that uh, it ultimately came down to 2008, just destroyed us. I mean, we had a, a pretty significant lead investor, and we were not at cash flow break even yet. I mean, we were swinging for the fences in that business. We were not looking to to do base hits and grow the business steadily over time. We were looking to partner with a major retailer. And that made for an attractive investment to capital sources, because if we succeeded, it would be significant. But when you're swinging for the fences, and that's the only acceptable outcome, you can only swing for the fences. And that's tough. And when 2008 came, our lead investor um, just 
pulled back on all capital and, and we pretty much had to shut the doors. Yeah, that makes it tough. So so drop spot until 07, 08 time frame and then where where to from there? Uh, ended up at Zenode, uh, which was another startup in town. Uh, they were an e-commerce software company and I love e-commerce stuff. So that was that was a cool opportunity for me. I was their CFO and I helped with some uh, financing aspects, some some capital raise, uh, a little bit of that. And then um, they started asking me a lot of questions about Google Ads because they knew I'd spent a little time tinkering with Google Ads and was very interested in them. And so I started taking a look at theirs and we came up with an optimization strategy that enabled us to a little more than double sales from the same ad spend. And pretty soon after that, we were acquired by Yellow Book you know, who was looking to go more more digital for obvious reasons. And uh, it was a, a very solid exit. And uh, the founders did a, a real good job navigating that. And uh, and I resigned at that point because I could I could tell the, the path they were going to take was one that was probably going to be less exciting for me. But at that point, I had really picked up the entrepreneurial skills that I, I needed to get back in the fight, you know, this time a little more successfully. And, and I had some contacts as a result of all of that and a little bit of money in the bank to give me some runway. So the other thing I picked up through that experience, though, that was valuable was I figured out what business I wanted to get into. And that had been a struggle for me, knowing I wanted to be an entrepreneur and not having a business I was excited about for the first 10 years of my career. Uh, I finally found it. And that was digital advertising. And so what year is this again? 2011. 2011, you finally fired up. Do you remember what that first year looked like? I do. I was very fortunate, actually. I, I came across a, a guy in town who did some SEO work. Nice guy, Chris Rubino. He um, connected me with a client of his. And uh, so, I mean, my goal was how do I figure out how to replace my salary, you know, hopefully in six months or so, so it's not uncomfortable. That I mean, within a couple months, I was pretty much there. And uh, that was helpful. So... It was nice to have, you know, somebody kind of help me get started. So you started by selling SEO projects? Actually, no, I don't, I don't do SEO. I don't, I don't even know that much about it, to be honest, which is, which is odd, but I'm very specialized. Um, so it's all digital, digital ads and attribution is, is kind of my world and connecting the dots to the finance and accounting teams at, at companies uh, from marketing to that, you know. So um, the SEO stuff's a little bit different, the organic search. And so now I was, I was just doing uh, ad campaigns and managing them personally, you know, for a few different clients. So you're managing ad campaigns. Are these mostly going across Google or all sorts of different mediums? Yeah, at the time it was just Google. Yeah, Facebook didn't even have ads out yet. So That's what all that has changed. Uh, it has, yeah. A whole bunch of different times it's changed. And so what point do you start to bring on employees? You know, that was, uh, I think I was second year in to the business. And uh, that was super rocky. I mean, I, I did not understand if I had stable enough clients to support employees. I just knew I had enough revenue to hire employees. And so um, I, uh, I I went for it and I hired a couple guys. And uh, right after getting my second guy on the team, we lost more than half of our business in the very next week. And all of a sudden, I had these two employees and was losing money by having the doors open. And so, you know, I didn't feel right telling one of the guys this isn't working out because that, that was really on me. Um, so I just uh, I just kept them going. And, and luckily, it worked out fine. Within three months, we picked up some good clients and, and it all worked out. So it's good to be in a growing industry. And at that time, we were, Google Ads was growing like crazy. 
So you're riding, and I don't mean this negative way, but just like to, to kind of paint the pitch, you're riding the coattails of Google to some oh, extent. Yeah. You're becoming a master on the Google ads. You bring on, you have three three people on total, two employees in, outside of yourself, mm-hmm. and you lose 50% of your revenue. Were you doing the majority of the sales? Uh, yeah, all of them, yeah. How were you going about trying to get new clients? Well, I mean, I, I really, uh, when you're that small, networking is enough, you know? When you get bigger, you need to understand your ideal client profile and where to find them and how to talk to them. But when you're that small, I mean, just networking and and talking to people in town will will support you. So that's really what I was doing. And how do you start to evolve from Google Ads to becoming a more sophisticated kind of holistic digital marketing agency? Yeah, so I would say um, we had kind of a a breakthrough. We had a big client here in town um, who I can't say the name of because they were strict on confidentiality, but but they were big. And uh, they worked with us on Google Shopping. And I knew Google Shopping was probably going to be big because they had the the intelligence to put a picture of the product and the price right in the ad. And that's a big deal because if you have to pay for every click, then you want to present things that people might object to before you pay for the click. So put the price on there. And if they don't want to pay that much, they don't, won't click. So that's, that's a great way to do an ad. So we got really interested in those ads and working with that big company, we were able to devote huge amounts of time to it. And so I built a team of some you know really smart people and four of us got in a room and chased an idea that I sort of brainstormed up one day that uh, we could do keyword bidding in Google Shopping. Keyword bidding is not something you're supposed to be able to do in Google Shopping. It's, a, it's you place your bids on each product you know, I'm willing to bid 50 cents to sell this microphone, but you're not allowed to pick the keyword, you know, like high-end microphone. You're not allowed to do that. And so we figured out this complicated algorithm uh, that enabled us to do that. And it was pretty powerful. It took a long time. It took about five months of R&D. We kept trying the theoretical approach to it and it kept failing. And I thought I was going to have to throw away all this time that I had these guys working on non-billable stuff, but I was chasing it because I thought we could figure it out. And, uh, the very end, right as we were about to scrap it, you know, one of my guys came up with this idea that I thought was a total long shot. We tried it and it worked. We could actually take any keyword that we want and we could uh, own the entire search page, right? So if, if you run a search for something like guitar parts or luggage, um, Google Shopping ads, you'll get, you know, 10 ads that show up at the top of the page and there's a carousel. You can open it up and get to like 25 or so. We could have our client own all 25 and remove every single competitor from the screen right on Google's page. And so that's a powerful thing to be able to show people because they know that you can't hijack Google's system. And so if you can show them that you can do that, they know that you're doing something that other people aren't doing because nobody else is able to show them that. And so that's what catapulted our business. That was the launch point for our whole business, really. Um, As soon as we did that, we landed um, to me as a client and then Samsonite, um, they're owned, you know, common ownership, and they have, like, several other brands. And they were excited, so they wanted to run a big test and have us dominate the whole Google page for luggage terms for some of their clients for, like, a two-week test. And so we did that, and it was it was pretty fun, um, you know, just watching all the competitors disappear on a, on a really big term. And uh, after that, we just started getting tons of referrals. And I got to imagine that the feeling, or maybe not, but I, I would be feeling back my head, this is going to... Google's going to catch on to this soon and <laughs> yeah. this house is going to come crumbling. So let's collect as much money as we can in the meantime. 
Were you just going like gangbusters to till till that happened? Well, I probably undercapitalized to be honest in retrospect. I mean, we uh we just built the business off referrals and I, it occurred to me that I could productize that. And I started to map out what that might look like and realized I was going to have to put some money into that, you know, some sort of investment, a couple hundred thousand or so. And um I just thought Google was going to change the darn system, you know? I mean, I really I did not think that that would work for any any durable manner, you know, like five years or something. And it still works today. Still to this day. Yeah, it does. It's not as powerful as it used to be, admittedly. For certain clients, it's still great. What has happened is Google has launched all of these automated campaign types, and they have caught up in their ability to compete with the advantage that we had. So we can still use it. For some of our clients, and we do, and sometimes it's a, a good fit and it's valuable. But it used to be that we would launch a client and we might increase their sales in the channel by 17x or 10x. I mean, that was pretty common. And that's, you know, if a client sees that happen, that's that's very unusual, right? So it was powerful. And so to the extent that it's minimized that, like I just, I'm, I'm so mind boggled that you could literally take over an entire page. It's like if I signed up with you, I couldn't lose basically as long as there was people that wanted my product and Google had that attention, which I mean, yeah. it's got what, 70% of search on the internet. So, you know, I just got to make a not crappy product and then go sign up with you and then I make a bunch of money. Yep. As long as you had a decent conversion rate on your web uh, website to support it, you know, like if you have, uh, if your pricing is off compared to your competition, like we can't, we can't overcome some of those problems. You know, you're going to end up spending tons of money on the ads and it won't be that profitable. But if you're in line with the leaders in your industry, we could absolutely set that up and let it run. And present day, how how effective is it versus the past? I mean, it has a niche application now. Yeah. So if you've got a client who sells like a few things and those keywords are really big to them, then the advantage that we bring in the ability to target those keywords and only bid on that keyword and no others is, is pretty valuable still. But overall, like if you take a retailer that has 30,000 products in their catalog, it's it's not going to be a significant advantage. Do you have an example off the top of your head, or are you able to share an example? Maybe uh, not. I don't really have one right now. No. Because is, is anybody else doing it? No, there, I have not seen any other competitors crack the code on how to do this. There are things that are close, but they're not quite on target where they can dominate a page. And we don't do it that much anymore because it's it's become harder to do it in a profitable way. So if, right now, if we dominate a page, it might be a break-even proposition on that keyword. But ultimately, it's also not, it's not crazy important to do that because in a Google shopping campaign, you're, you're not driving sales from one keyword. You're usually driving sales from like 30,000 keywords. So that part lost me. You got to um, probably talk to me like I'm a child there. So you're saying that even if I could dominate an entire page for the keyword of like, let's say I sell uh, plastic cups isn't a good one. I sell Zoom uh, recorders. And I you I Google that on Google Shopping, and only Josh Witt's brand of those pops up. Yep. But because I have to pay for every single one of those ads, my customer acquisition cost is still so high that it it's really not going to be a great strategy for me. Probably not. Um, it has changed because the cost per click has climbed so much in the past couple of years that to employ that strategy, it, it you may be unprofitable to run it. You may not. I mean, it, it kind of depends on the industry. The guys who can still run it are the ones who have a high lifetime value. So if you get a customer and they buy three of those over the next five years, and you know you're going to make a lot of money on each customer that you get. You, you don't can, care about that first one as much. absolutely 
run this strategy. Do I have to pay for every single block? And I'm getting pretty tactical here. Nope. Uh, I don't have to pay for every block. Nope, just the clicks. So it's like free branding because all the other ads that you own the page on are free. Why is it so expensive? Just that one click can get that expensive? Absolutely. I mean, it depends what we're what we're marketing. Uh, obviously, we're talking about the e-commerce agency right now, but I also have a lead generation agency called Opgen. And uh, in that space, I mean, you know, you get terms that are $80 a click for certain legal terms and, you know, they'll pay crazy amounts um, per click because the, the settlement that they win is so significant. Hey, everybody. Mike here. We're going to take a quick break to talk about one of our sponsors, One Columbus. And we are very excited to partner with One Columbus. They really, really share the same vision as us here at the Conquering Columbus podcast, which is really building up the Columbus region to be one of the most prosperous regions in the United States. And One Columbus serves as the business location resource for companies across central Ohio and around the world as those companies grow, innovate, and compete within the global economy. And they help us lead a regional growth strategy that develops and attracts the world's most competitive companies, it grows a highly adaptive workforce and prepares our communities for the future, inspiring innovation across the board. Their mission really is just ensuring the Columbus region is a vibrant place to build businesses and careers. So again, we really appreciate all of their support. You want to learn more about them, go check out their website, columbusregion.com. That's columbusregion.com. Thanks so much for tuning in. We'll be right back into the episode. So fast forward to today, are we still predominantly focused on Google pay-per-click, Google search, Google shopping, and what does the team size look like? You mentioned another company alongside of it. Yep, yep. So where we're at now, uh, we have grown to about uh, 30 people in conversion path. And so, I mean, we're doing Google ads, Facebook ads, Instagram, um, a little bit of Amazon ads and so forth. We do a pretty consultative model in terms of what we're doing. And, uh, you know, I'm sure we'll, we'll talk a little bit about the other thing we're into here in a minute which is uh, an attribution software that we've developed. And uh, then we also have OpGen, and that's I think we're right around 13 people on that team. And uh, they do lead generation for some big clients here in town, as well as a bunch of small medical clinics all over the country. And uh, that's, a, that's a great business. And uh, my, I have a partner that runs that business, Mark Boston. We work together back at a couple other places, Zenode, for example, and uh, also the drop spot. And so we've known each other, you know, real well. And there's a lot of trust. And so it's been, that's been real positive. Is conversion path predominantly focused on B2C companies? It is. Yeah. Uh, we have a few B2Bs, but it's e-commerce is what we're doing. And then OpGen, I'm assuming that's predominantly a B2B play. It is. Yeah. It's, it's kind of rare that we're doing a consumer play, but sometimes. Where do you see, this is an intriguing topic that I've been talking about quite frequently and trying to run through my brain, is that division line between B2C digital marketing versus B2B digital marketing? Yeah. Like, is there a certain, I mean, because like at the end of the day, you know, like the, the ability to target, obviously it's very hard to target a unique individual, but targeting individuals themselves, like if you're a good B2C digital marketer, you should be a good B2B digital marketer. Would you agree? And do you see different tactics deployed in those different mediums? Well, definitely. I mean, uh, B2C and B2B are, are different mostly in the sales cycle, I would say. I mean, a, a B2C, a lot of times we're talking about e-commerce. And so people search for something or they are advertised something and they go to the website and they may buy it right away uh, or they'll buy it very soon thereafter usually. With B2B, I mean, we're, we're often generating leads for somebody to buy a home or we, well, I guess that'd be B2C technically, but, you know, we're generating leads that have a strong, a long sales cycle. So, software companies that we sometimes work with. I mean, 
we'll generate a lead and the buy uh, the buyer might buy you know six months later. It's pretty different. And so let's say another thing I've tried to wrap my head around at a deeper level has been working with some some clients recently is like the the full exhaustive list of potentials, right? So you got display, you've got Google, you've got social. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's probably going to be the three big predominant categories. And then your basically big game is to, on each of those mediums, find the ideal customer profile in the most efficient, effective way, and then drive them to a landing page and convert them. Is that kind of how you think about it from a high level? Yep, you got it. Absolutely. The landing page is super important. Um, that's, a, that's a big differentiator in what we do in, in the opt-in company is design landing pages for our clients most of the time because the the way you can influence a who ends up filling out your your form and connecting with your salespeople is is really significant on the page. And then what about the change that's happened recently with iOS? Like I mean a lot of people have talked about your ability to capture that email and that phone number and own your own first party data is is all you have going forward. What what has been your take on that? Has that changed the way you've worked with your clients? I mean, it definitely has. I mean, one of the things that you notice with people that are running iOS campaigns, I mean, so two things happen. And and not everyone realizes that there are two distinct consequences to these changes. The first one is uh, Facebook's own ability to create audiences that you can target and run ads to was compromised. And so targeting which directly relates to how effective the advertising was hurt. The second thing that happened is the ability to track sales that happened was also compromised because of the inability to track cookies on the site. And so with that being the case, you could be running a campaign that was driving $100,000 in sales yesterday, and today it says it's driving 50, but it's actually still driving 100. You just can't tell. And so that was a colossal issue for a lot of brands because they would see their sales in a Facebook campaign absolutely tank. I mean, it, you know, they went from a, an ROI of a, like a $9 um, in sales per dollar spent on ads to it said a $2, you know, ROI, which is hugely consequential. And, you know, if they believe that they're going to turn the ads off. But in many cases, it, it was really still driving a, a significant ROI, but it's hard to tell somewhere between two and nine. Um, but with poor tracking tools that are available, it's, it's tough. Do you still think there's the ability or will be the ability going forward to track at a level that's sophisticated enough to make it make economic sense to use some of those digital mediums out there? Or do you think the the ways of yeah. Facebook and Twitter and all that and Instagram is going to disappear? Yeah, so I, I don't think they're going to disappear because they have huge audiences, right? So they're, they're going to monetize those audiences. I mean, it just may not be as effective as, you, as it used to be. You know, you can look at uh, a Facebook ads report I looked at one yesterday for a client that spent $30,000 over a month on Facebook ads. And when I looked at Google Analytics, measuring those Facebook ad clicks, it said that there were $19,000 in sales made. So that's not a good return. And uh, when I looked at Facebook's platform, it said it was $219,000. That's how far apart they are. And they're measuring the exact same clicks. That is crazy. Yeah. And so obviously you see the rise and maybe this transitions in, into a good talk about the SaaS platform. You see the rise sure. of all of these people trying to, and, and, I'll, and I'll probably bastardize it so you can stop me, but another attempt for me to wrap my head around at a deeper level sure. is they are basically deploying softwares that put out their own pixel so then you can control understanding who's converting. You almost like a pixel, from my understanding, is almost like your own self-deployed cookie, yeah. except it's stored instead of on the browser. It's on your hard drive, I believe. Well, I, I don't know when they're doing their own their own pixel. I'd have 
but the, more, but, more techie person for that one. But the idea is, I mean, basically you deploy it so that way you can track it back into your own software and you can measure, you know, what ads are actually working because you can't accurately do that anymore in, in Facebook and Instagram and all that. Yeah, there, there's definitely a rise in attribution software companies. And so, uh, but the thing that I learned as I really dug into it is that everybody's chasing the click. And so everybody wants to track every click that happens to a website and decide which clicks get credit for driving the sale. The problem is that a lot of the factors that determine what caused a sale are absolutely not a click. If that's the only thing that you're measuring and there are other factors that matter, you're missing part of the story and you're missing a significant part of the story. And so I'll give you an example that is, I think, not hard for most people to wrap their head around. Uh, You take a brand that's been around for a long time. So we've got a a company we work with that uh, they make 70% of their sales selling tools to uh, an audience that is already customers of theirs. So it's repeat purchases, people that have been with them for a decade or more. And so when you think about the fact that 70% of their sales come from old customers, um, you realize that the current marketing isn't causing those sales. Um, The stuff, the Google ads and the Facebook ads and things, those sales are happening because those people already know the brand and they simply need stuff that the brand sells. But if you look at an analytics system, it takes 100% of sales that happen on the website and credits them to the marketing channels. It says that all of these sales were caused by a marketing channel. It's not true. And so how do you solve that? Yeah, so I mean, that's that's what our software gets into. And so the big thing that you have to depart from is this idea that you can assign a sale to every click. It's just not, it's just not accurate. And so that's that attempt to do that is never going to work. You know, if you can't measure everything that results in an outcome, then the system is not going to work unless you use estimation and other tactics. Think about like if you had a Garmin system and you were not able to measure if somebody turned left or right, you could only measure the distance from where they started to where they ended. That system can only be accurate if they walk in a straight line. So that's not very helpful. And so you are trying to go in and create with the software, identifying, separating those first-time customers versus reoccurring customers, is that the predominant separation? No, not as much because that actually requires getting into the CRM. And that is a that is a huge lift for companies. Um, and some, some undertake it, but uh, not many. Um, that's something that gets talked about and big companies sometimes will, will try to pursue those efforts. Those are tough efforts because um, there's such huge integrations that if you have any kind of staff turnover, you got this huge piece of software, and all of a sudden, learnings get lost and, you know, it ends up being on the shelf at some point. And that's one of the things that we sometimes see happen. So uh, the vast majority of e-commerce brands that we work with do not have that type of integration. And so, I mean, they're making their decisions without being able to segment between new and returning customers. So our system is not doing that either. And most attribution systems that we've seen aren't as well. Um, but what we are able to do is make some very logical changes to how sales are getting credited. And we've got a whole process for visualizing the sales funnel for our customers that use the software so that they can see how much of my investment and traffic is coming from people that are new to the site versus ones that are coming back to the site or ones that were just simply typing in my brand name because they just needed to get on my website to complete a purchase, which is what we refer to as a navigational click. And uh, it's, it's a key distinction because, you know, they weren't, that, that click probably didn't cause them to, to buy, right? They were just trying to get on the site. 
just like they have to hit add to cart button to make a purchase. So without revealing the secret sauce, are you guys doing that through like statistical modeling or how are you able to deliver those results for them? Yeah, so there, there's a variety of approaches that we use. One is logical. A good example of that would be a lot of brands will, will give a lot of credit to email for driving sales. But, you know, some channel had to activate subscribers in the email list. And so if you give all that credit for the sale to email and you give no credit to the channels that put subscribers in the email list, well, that doesn't really make a lot of sense. There's an assist there. So you should probably share some credit, you know, between those two channels or multiple channels. And uh, the systems don't do that because they're click-based. And so that would be an example of a logical manipulation that we're going to do to how much sales credit is going to the email channel. And so that's that's one method that we will use is just logical, this makes sense. And uh, we also use uh, statistical modeling where we've done incrementality tests for lots and lots of companies over the past 11 years in the business. And uh, we've done things like shut off all their ads and see what happens. and uh, Or ramp their ads up to these really egregious levels and, and measure what happens to total sales. And so after you've done that so many times, you can start to build models around that and find out like, okay, if somebody's running Facebook ads around this level, um, their return's probably going to be in this range. And uh, according to their system, it's way outside of that range. So that's clearly off. So we can use that to help, um, you know, drive a much more accurate uh, measurement for them. And so our whole, our whole model does that for our clients. Do you see a long-term world where instead of the first system you buy when you start a company is, well, maybe not every company does this. I would think it would be, you know, at least CRM for a good majority of them. Instead, I buy an attribution software and then every other package that I put in around that takes a pixel or some tracking mechanism from my attribution software. Because I mean, it's like, just feels like this is such an age old problem. Nobody really knows. In a yeah. world where digital and everything can technically be tracked to some extent, we have less insight into what our, what our marketing is driving in return than we did if we just put ads in the yellow pages back in the 90s or something because we were only using one medium. Yep, that's well said. Uh, I often tell people ads are ad measurement is about 50% accurate today, and I can convince anybody of that given about two minutes. That's wild. So, so many things going on. You've you've been very intelligent with the people that you you put on your team and the products you developed and whether you've found value for your clients and you've grown over time. It sounds like very organically and through uh, word of mouth referrals and doing good work. And now you're at this point where you kind of got these three different companies going on. What does the, the future look like? Yeah. So, I mean, Mark's doing a great job running OpGen with the team over there. So I'm pretty hands-off with that. You know, I get involved with some strategy discussions with him, but I've got a great operator there, you know, and uh, he's a guy that I trust. So I think we're in pretty good shape. Um, so my focus is predominantly on uh, Conversion Path, the e-commerce agency, and integrating what we're doing with our attribution software. And so, I mean, we are at the basic steps, you know, the first steps of that right now. And so as a company that grew off of referrals in the past, we realized that we cannot be a company that does that in the future. That will not really succeed for us. Our path to success is to find the clients in our ideal client profile. You know, the ones that we know do really well with our, our system and uh, get more of those. And so that means we need a uh, an intentional sales plan to go and speak to those specific people. And so we got to change, you know, we have to change the business. We have to change how we do things and who we are as people. 
Uh, we are not a crew of highly promotional uh, individuals. You know, you walk around and meet our people. They're all nice people. They're all super intelligent. They're also pretty analytical, pretty comfortable in a spreadsheet. And so we're not the kind of people that, that go out and do a lot of self-promotion typically. So that's something we got to work on. Any other advice for our listeners that are typically either business leaders or uh, aspiring entrepreneurs, executives throughout Columbus? You know, I have my little lessons that I've learned over time, and, and I have I have a bunch, I guess. I can share a few. So I think one is, is just realizing that if you embark on an entrepreneurial journey, that you are walking the path less traveled. And uh, if you do it right, a lot of your non-entrepreneur friends will, will doubt your career choices. And, uh, and then once you're outwardly successful, it changes. You know, they, they start to advocate for you and act like you know what you're doing. And ironically, by the time you reach that level, you, you probably never felt more like you don't know what you're doing. But uh, it's just kind of the path that, that you go on. I think another one is be careful who you partner with. Super hard to unwind partnerships. So I've always had the uh, opinion of I'm going to work with somebody until we run into a hard situation. And if that takes a year, then so be it. Um, once I see how they act in a hard situation, um, I know who I'm dealing with, you know. What has been motivating for you over the years? Like, have, have you been driven by, and I know a lot of people, they struggle with this question, so you don't have to answer it either. And, and it's because it's kind of a deep one, but like, do, is, it, is it money or is it building business or is it, you know, just adding value? When I started, it was, I definitely set out on the, on the path to make some money and do better than I could have done in a, in a job. And that changed. I mean, that, that motive won't sustain people. I felt good about the fact that I changed. Like I was, I was happy that I could feel that occurring, like the things that I focused on were starting to change. And so a core belief that what you're doing matters is, is pretty clutch. You know, it's, it's, that's what sustains you. That's what keeps you going. Not really the money so much. It tends to follow. You build great things. Usually the money's there. And the last question of our show is centered around the theme, which is live uncomfortably. So without describing too much on you know why we chose it or what it means to us, does it mean anything to you? And, and how do you feel like it applies to your life and career at all, if at all? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I feel like I've, I've picked up a master's degree in discomfort in the last couple of years. And I, I felt like I actually, a lot of the years of my entrepreneurial journey, I, I really didn't feel that uncomfortable. I mean, it, I had moments, you know, from a purpose. I mean, it's like going to the gym, you know, you only get stronger by doing it. The more you're in discomfort, the, the more you're going to grow. But in the past two years, I, I committed to launching attribution software and I knew I had a lot on my plate already. And right after launching it, the, the pandy came along and everything got pretty crazy then. And, um, but then, you know, for me, the biggest discomfort was, was definitely not of my choosing. And that was receiving the news that I was being divorced. And, uh, that is something that I was, I did not see coming. And, uh, and then my mom passed and it was just a, a crazy time. Divorce is crazy because it's the death of so many things like a relationship, a family, a bunch of common friends that might start picking sides now. Um, financial security, support, you know, as an entrepreneur, like support from your spouse. And so um, it, was a, it was a ride. I mean, you get some chronic anxiety, lose a bunch of weight, but you find a path through it. I mean, for me in the beginning, it was make it to the end of the day and then it was a successful day. And if I do that 90 more times, then I've got a quarter's worth of healing, you know, behind me. And uh, now I've done that a bunch of times. And so I'm in really good shape now. And I can look back and see uh, it forced me to grow a much deeper connection with my kids and be far more attentive to their emotional needs. And I think that my relationship with them has gotten stronger. And I can see that it even influences how I approach, you know, people in business. So, you know, 
I think that uh, you don't want to embark in discomfort most of the time. I mean, most of us try to avoid it for the most part, but sometimes it's worth it. And we do it on purpose, like going to the gym. And, uh, but we always come out stronger because of it. And, and being stronger, we can do more things for the people that are around us. To the extent that you're comfortable talking about this, like how, when you're going through something like that, how, how much do you share with your employees and let them know, you know, what, what is real versus try to hold, you know, strong and make them seem composed, like nothing's going on? I am not, uh, I am not the type to um, conceal things, you know. I, uh, I prefer that people see that I'm going through something and I prefer to kind of let them in if I trust them. And, uh, and the people that I work with, I mean, I, I do trust. And a lot of them, I, I kind of told them what I was going through. And they saw me pull back from the business for a time, um, at working a little bit less while I managed other things. But uh, and then I got, I got over it, you know, and things were better. And I, I got back in the business and then I was motivated again. And it was great to be back and feeling, you know, good about what we're building. And everybody was supportive, you know. So I was, I was glad I did share that stuff with them. Well, Tom, thanks for jumping on. This has been great. Are there any final words that you'd like to, to talk about? I mean, I don't think so, but I do. I really appreciate what you guys are doing here. I think it's really cool. I, I do uh, feel like entrepreneurs need a lot more support. It's kind of a lonely battle a lot of times. And Columbus is good in that there are a lot of entrepreneurs here. So if you if you seek them out, you know, they, they are supportive. But uh, I know I spent a lot of years not doing that, just kind of working in my office quietly. And I think that was a mistake. So I would encourage people not to do that. I do have one final question on my side, and I, I'd forgot it a second ago, and it just circled back. Is you know, you look at someone who's who's built what you've built today, and all the different things that you have going on at once. What does work-life balance look like? Has that changed over the years? And, and could you talk to the ups and flows of that? Yeah, I mean, for me, work-life balance was uh, I decided I was going to go to the gym multiple times a week, and I was going to put that first. And that's the funny thing about a gym is if you don't put it first, you don't do it. You know, and that, and for years, I, I I blew off the idea of doing a golf league and and uh, joining a gym. And so last year, I mean, I did both, you know, finally did the golf league. It was awesome. Super fun. Joined a gym. I've been super consistent there. And so I put those things first and I put time with the kids first and, uh, and work just has no choice but to follow. And so sometimes it gets less time than it used to, but it's okay. Things still progress. But there was a point in your life where you, where you were putting those first and it, and it, did it feel do you look back and regret that or does it does it feel like, you know, was the thing that you had to do at the moment? Yeah, I don't know if I have a super clear answer on that. I've thought about it. I think that uh, I don't think I'd encourage somebody else to do it. Yeah, because if you don't have work-life balance, uh, eventually, eventually life forces you to have it. So it's better to just have it on the front end and figure out how to make things work while having the positive things in your life. Well, thanks again for jumping on, Tom. This has been awesome. Uh, appreciate you making the trip down and making the drive back about one and a half times since uh, <laughs> we actually had to turn around there for a second. And right. thank you, Conquering Columbus, for listening. We will talk to you again next week. Yeah.